What Sam Houston had in mind as 1859 slid into 1860 was the boldest and most daring filibustering expedition that his fertile brain had ever conceived, namely to lead 10,000 Texas Rangers, supported by Indians and Mexicans, into Mexico to establish a protectorate with himself in the leading role. And incidentally, perhaps so dazzle the Americans that they would forget their factional quarrel over slavery and come to his support. At one stroke, Sam Houston would save the Union, expand the national domain, and perhaps receive, as his just reward, the presidency of the United States. When Houston returned to Texas to become governor in 1859, he brought that dream with him. The time to move against Mexico had come. All was propitious, and if the United States would not accept the call of manifest destiny, he would. There is unmistakable evidence that he began at once to discuss the Mexican protectorate with close personal friends, or permitted them to discuss it with him. But the Civil War was now too close to be averted. Winter was at hand, a winter of four months for the season, of four years for the nation, and of thirty for the South. But winter is the season when old men like to sit by the fireside and dream. In the winter of 1860-61, to 61, a grim and wonderfully wise old man must have sat many evenings in the governor's mansion before a wide hearth on which a great fire danced and laughed at the fantastic shadows which kept perfect time on the walls and high ceiling. But these shadows were no more fantastic than the old governor's dream. From the north and for the future he saw civil war and predicted with prophetic vision its outcome. To the south he saw what might have been, and that was more pleasant to him. He saw a column of ten thousand men, at the head of which rode a very big captain who had proved at Monterey and Buena Vista what the Texas Rangers under his lead could do in Mexico. Behind Ben McCulloch rode all the Texas Rangers drawn from the Indian frontier. The good Mexican guides would be the right men in the right place now. A Mexican contingent, led perhaps by that valiant freebooter Cortinas, would grow in numbers as the column advanced into Mexico. Forward and on flank, a thousand Indians, Kickapoos, Creeks, Cherokees, Kiowas, and Comanches would go to scout, trail, and spy. Thus would Sam Houston go, like Alexander the Great carrying American civilization southward as the Macedonian had borne Greek culture eastward, for Mexico peace, for the United States unity, and for Sam Houston, fame and glory. This was the dream into which every part of Houston's military policy fits. That is from Walter Prescott Webb's definitive, despite all the efforts of modern academia and media, 1935 history of the Texas Rangers. I'm Joshua Trevino, and this is The Hard Country. and welcome to the Hard Country podcast episode two. My name is Melissa Ford. I am a policy director at the Texas Public Policy Foundation and I'm joined by Joshua Trevino, the foundation's chief of intelligence and research. So thank you, Josh, for reading those passages. They were super interesting, but what's most interesting to me is how, I guess, history can happen in cycles um, with the same issues popping up decades later, in this case, centuries later. And what we were seeing back then with Sam Houston's, I guess, desire to conquer Mexico and he his desire for doing that was mainly to eliminate 
a threat that was coming from Mexico. Sure. And now we're still seeing a threat coming from Mexico in a in a bit of a different way. Um, but we are also seeing a state having to step up as it did back then. Right. And so this is a very interesting parallel. And so I guess we discussed this a little bit in episode one, but what I want to keep delving into today is that relationship between the U.S. and Mexico and how it's been on a somewhat of a downward trajectory and not just the U.S. and Mexico, but Texas and Mexico, Yeah. mainly as it relates to security. Yeah. And I think that we could devote a whole entire episode of a podcast to talking about how that relationship has changed with different presidents. It's ranged from everything from people that had good intentions to people that were very nonchalant about the situation, everything up until even like inefficiency and collusion. We have seen that with many different presidencies, but today I want to focus mostly on the current presidency. Sure. So Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador, we're going to name him as AMLO just for short. Right. Uh, but what we're seeing today is basically a shutdown of U.S.-Mexico Texas-Mexico cooperation. So why do you think that is? Where is that coming from? And what does that look like? Yeah, great questions, Melissa. It's good to be back here with you. The, you know, um, uh, things change across history and history is always contingent, uh, but it's no accident that there are things that tend to be enduring. Uh, strategic yeah. position is enduring. Geography is enduring. Culture mm -hmm. tends to be enduring. Uh, and we shouldn't overstate those things. But at the same time, I think, as you rightly point out, as far as the Texas-Mexico relation goes, you see the similar issues cropping up over and over and over again. Right. Uh, you know, talking about Sam Houston, uh, so I'll rewind a little bit. I know you want to focus on AMLO in the modern day, but talking about Sam Houston and his dreams of a filibustering expedition into Mexico. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, for those uh, who are listening now who don't know uh, that much about the history, the filibustering expedition was a uh, an American tradition, uh, I would say, um, uh, that uh, really existed predominantly in the 19th century. It kind of bled over a bit, especially expressed in federal policy into the 20th century, of, of this... Um, uh, th this idea that you could raise an independent force of men and go and conquer uh, a section of, mm -hmm. of, of Latin America uh, effectively. And the reason that this became a temptation uh, in, in candor was because uh, after severing the Spanish connection, um, uh, which happened in most of Latin America, uh, circa 1820. You had that kind of disastrous decade for Spain that really unfolded uh, from the Napoleonic intervention all the way through the early 1820s, um, uh, with the exception of some of the Caribbean islands, obviously. Uh, uh, that these uh, republics, these Latin American republics that succeeded the Spanish domain uh, effectively had no foreign protector. So right. uh, previously where there was always a threat of war with the European power, um, if you interfered with Spain's uh, American domains, uh, prior to that, um, uh, afterwards, there was no effective strategic penalty. As an author, um, I had to write down his name here because uh, I believe he's of Georgian origin, uh, Mika Baridze, who has written very persuasively on this. He has a great book on uh, the Napoleonic Wars, kind of the global aspect of the Napoleonic Wars, and he talks about the, um, uh, the one of the uh, one of the consequences of the Napoleonic Wars 
being the independence of, of, of the Spanish domains in America, effectively, and as, as he puts this, removing them from the mainstream of politics and history for the next 200 years. Mm -hmm. And that, that, that actually is something that is uh, a lot more true, I think, uh, than not. Uh, and one of the consequences of it uh, was that men like Sam Houston, men like William Walker in Nicaragua and so on, actually could conceive and sometimes even try to execute these filibustering plans. Now, to, to, to bring it back full circle to Texas, mm -hmm. uh, uh, you know, what, what you had seen in Texas by the time Houston returns to the governorship of Texas in 1859 has been uh, effectively, uh, you know, you know 20 years plus, you know, if you want to, depending on when you want to date it from. So let's date it from the beginning of the Texas Revolution in 1835. So you're, you're talking about a quarter century of threat emanating from Mexico. Uh, and set aside the extent to which the threat is justified or not, because uh, it's kind of ancillary to our conversation. But the reality is that you had a community that felt, I think, legitimately that it was under real existential threat. Um, and certainly for the Anglo population of Texas, the Anglo settler population of Texas, um, uh, it was likely true, given the experience of Santa Ana and the runaway scrape, um, that a Mexican reconquest actually would result in their extermination uh, as a people. Uh, and, so, and so what they looked at, which is not the case today, Thank God, uh, but it's 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 absolutely not it has not been the case for for, for well over a century now. Um, but what you saw, uh, and what I think Sam Houston was responding to when he comes in 1859, and and we have this very interesting episode that Webb, uh, you, know, you know, brings up and 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 talks about, right. not a well known one, uh, is is in some ways a rational response um, by the polity of Texas, which is now part of the United States, to that continuing threat. Uh, in the period you had uh, what was called the Cortina War, which actually goes on through the Civil War period. Mm -hmm. um, uh, Cortina is, is, is actually a heroic figure in many ways. I think he's, he's justly regarded among um, uh, kind of in Norteño lore as a, as a defender of people's rights. Um, uh, but at the same time, uh, he was also uh, an exporter of, of, of violence uh, and theft uh, onto the Texas side. And uh, there was a desire to deal with that. You know, it's 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 commonly forgotten that the that the kind of the violence and the the, the disorder of the Texas frontier in the 1850s in particular. So you're talking this this period that's bracketed between the end of the Mexican-American War and the U.S. Civil War. Uh, the bulk of the United States Army was actually deployed in Texas. This is why you have a bunch of these Civil War generals who end right. up spending time in Texas. Robert E. Lee being uh, likely the most famous example. Um, uh, but but that was because there were two frontiers to push back against in Texas. One was obviously the Indian frontier, which is uh, principally an issue of um, raids and counter raids with Comanches and Lapan Apaches. Uh, and then you've uh, you've got the Mexican frontier uh, as well. Um, uh, my friend, uh, Dr. Don Frazier at the Texas Center at Shriner likes to talk about Texas being uh, the only genuinely multicultural frontier in American history. And um, you, know, you can think of some others uh, out there, but uh, it's, still, it's still a great way to think about it. Uh, but coming with that, uh, obviously, was a great deal of violence and a need to deal with it. Uh, fast forwarding to the present day, uh, you're right. We do have a scenario uh, in which uh, Mexico as a polity, um, and, and again, as we have these conversations, we're never talking about the people of Mexico. We're not talking about Mexican culture. We're not talking about something that in itself is intrinsically inimical uh, to Texas or Texans. Uh, you know, as I said in the last podcast, we would not exist but for the Mexican inheritance. But at the same time, uh, you do have a state and a polity that fails to exert itself as a sovereign. And the consequences that emerge from that, I think very justly raise questions right. as to who deals with it. Um, we don't have a governor of Texas now who's going to lead an invasion of Mexico, um, uh, nor ought we. It's not to be hoped for um, because we're not living in 1859. But at the same time, 
we have an obligation to think about how we should respond. So based on what you're saying, mm -hmm. uh, as far as the threat coming from Mexico goes today, do you agree that that threat is mainly the cartels? I know there's a lot of people that think that that main threat looks like illegal immigration, but would you agree that the main threat coming from Mexico right now is cartel activity? Yeah, uh, yeah, I, I would, uh, but I think we have to define what we mean by cartel activity. The way to understand the Mexican cartels, and I see you've got uh, the TVPF research yes, paper next to you. I was just going to bring that up. Oh, well, please. Uh, well, go ahead and bring it up, and let's let, let's talk about that. Well, okay, then, then let me ask you a yeah. question. I do agree that the main threat that's coming from Mexico right now is cartel activity, but at the same time, it's nothing new. We have seen it with every president before the current president. And we, the paper that we have right here, it studies so many examples that mm -hmm. we've seen in the last couple of years, couple decades of, you know, top government officials that are yeah. doing everything from accepting bribes to maybe associating with cartel leaders to ignoring some underground cartel activity yeah. to even participating in it. And sometimes it looks subtle, like people maybe amassing a personal fortune that's like way too big to be consistent with the salary of a public servant. Sure. Uh, but it looks different in many ways. So what I wanted to ask you as far as it relates to this paper is what makes right now, this day and age, this president, 2023, what makes the situation uniquely dangerous? Yeah, that man, that is a great question. It's probably the question because right now the moment is uniquely dangerous. Uh, and you're absolutely right. Uh, the cartel activity, criminal activity in Mexico, has been going on for a long time. And, right. and look, in the United States, you know, we, we don't necessarily cast stones. I mean, we have our own organized crime element in the US. The difference being, of course, that the state generally fights uh, and seeks to defeat that organized crime element in the United States, which right. is not always the case in Mexico. Uh, you know, we, we have to understand how Mexico has been governed in the past century, really. You have this period of the Mexican Revolution, 1910 to 1920. And by the way, as an aside, if you really want to find out an individual Mexican's politics, um, ask him or her uh, who their revolutionary hero is. It's very, very telling. Yeah, it's 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 quite interesting. I mean, I mean, I'll tell you mine. I'm uh, despite myself, despite the fact that I'm a, an American conservative, uh, I do like Emiliano Zapata uh, and his revolution in Morelos. Uh, I think there's something very inspiring about it, um, uh, and that 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 idea of Zapatismo standing up for the dignity of kind of the in in his case. Um, the pastoral peasant uh, is, is, is to me much more appealing than almost anything else you see from any other revolutionary figure. Um, but, you know, it was, uh, I believe, uh, and listeners can double check me on this, I believe it was Jorge Castaneda who pointed out that in Mexico uh, and, and in a Latin American context in general, political ideology doesn't tend to um, assume the terminology of a particular idea. So in the United States, obviously, we have conservatism, we have liberalism, we have republicanism, we have, you know, uh, right. the, the Democratic Party used to be called democracy um, uh, in kind of common common rhetoric. And that doesn't really exist uh, in in Mexico. You have Madurismo in Venezuela. You've yeah. got you've got you know Chavismo. You've got um, uh, you know I just mentioned Zapatismo. Yeah. Um, uh, you know individuals who followed you know the eventual victor in the Mexican Revolution uh, called themselves Carrancistas after after uh, Carranza, uh, their leader. And so it's a very personalized type of rule. Uh, it is unique. it it is a yeah yeah it's it's a very um, uh, it's it's an organization around a man, yeah. uh, rather than an idea session. That doesn't mean that the man doesn't bear ideas, but uh, but but occasionally he doesn't. I mean, I mean there are there were vistas, right? Individuals who followed Pancho Villa and fought and died for him. Uh, but uh, you can't tell me what the 
ideological content as of, of, of Bismo. There, there just really isn't any. Is, is, I'm just curious, is this true in Bolivia as well? Yes. Have, yeah, tell me about that. Well, it doesn't look like, like it does here. Like there's not necessarily two parties. It's very much... Um, not as divided in the sense that it depends on who, who you're representing. Mm -hmm. But right now what it looks like is more like there's a socialist movement. We call it MAS, Movimiento al Socialismo. Sure. And there's people that very strongly back that. But historically, it's never looked like like it like it does here, like liberal versus conservative, Democrat right. versus Republican. Right. So I 100% agree. It's more a class and clan type thing. Exactly. Like uh, the, like like Isabella Allende's only good novel, which is The House of the Spirits. Uh, only. Sure. People would debate you on and, that. Yeah, no, people would debate me on that, but they would be incorrect. Uh, <laughs> I think I think House of the Spirits is worth everybody's time. I can't say the rest. Uh, although her her um her memoir of her her daughter's passing, which came out in the late 1990s, Paula, is. Have you read that one? No, it's but we did we did read Casa de los Espíritus. Everyone has to read it in high school. Really, in most of South America. Okay, I mean it's a good look at how that system works, though, right. isn't it? Because because you you've got the you've got kind of the class pillar, uh, the individual around whom everybody coalesces, and then they kind of come and go and things like that. Anyway, not to get too far off into a literary yes. discussion, <laughs> but you should read Paula as well. It's okay. uh, it, it's a very it's nonfiction of it, but a very beautiful book. Um, uh, despite uh, uh, despite. Uh, Allende writing the same book over and over and every other every other um, circumstance. Uh, look, you know, you know, so so you had this and and uh, and the, and then post post revolution in Mexico, there was an attempt, and it was a rational attempt, I think, to um, to impose some kind of structure upon this uh, what I would describe as this political society that really did tend to gravitate toward sort of this great man theory of of. Pretty much everything, right? And so, and so, you had what ends up getting called the perfect dictatorship. Uh, I don't remember who called it that. It was um, uh, Octavio Paz. Uh, Octavio Paz. He he he, he, might, he might have called it the perfect. Per so some some writer, some intellectual called it mm -hmm. the perfect dictatorship. And and it was a well earned uh, epithet because uh, what they did is they set it up uh, this kind of th this party syndicalist structure in Mexico that essentially controlled everything. And so it was a very, what I would describe as managed pseudo-democracy, that's my term for it, um, uh, that carried on for almost a century in Mexico. And you had one, it, you actually did have multiple parties, but you had only one that actually ran everything. It was the mm -hmm. PRI, the Partido Revolucionario Institucional. 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 Yeah. Gracias. Um, uh, so PRI uh, in English, and uh, and and they had this the, the, this managed process, that, like down to even picking the next president. They called the the the, the dasso. You, know, you point to the next guy in line, uh, and he would have his his six years in power. And so within that framework, uh, with with uh, uh, you know, almost literally, although they would never call it that, they would deny, it, but almost literally, kind of this this um, this proto fascist syndicalism. Every uh, enterprise and organization had its place within kind of the grand structure of the state. This is what arises in the 20s and 30s. And, uh, and, and by the way, anything that was outside of the state um, you know, was, was violently suppressed for a while, which is one reason you had the suppression of the Catholic Church, for example, mm -hmm. in the Costero War in Mexico, which is a horrific period. Um, uh, organized crime had its place in the state, too. Uh, and so it too, you know, it's an enterprise and it's illegitimate, but at the same time, there's sort of this understanding like that within kind of the grand system of systems in Mexico, and it was never totalitarian quite in the way that we would think of like a European totalitarian system. There's a place for organized crime. And so individuals who, um, uh, I don't remember if we talked about Carlos Hank Gonzalez in the last uh, podcast. I don't think we yeah. did. Uh, a, a really fascinating guy himself yeah. uh, who would have been, so, so his era in 
um, sort of eminence uh, really was was kind of this this twenty year period, the eighties and the nineties. Um, he essentially was kind of the grand eminence of the pre, uh, and really became um, uh, I, I would argue the controlling factor in Mexican politics in a lot of ways mm -hmm. in, in in the nineteen nineties. So so he you know was very influential in. Um, the, the the Carlos Salinas uh, period, and then Ernesto Zedillo in the '90s as well. And so these are you can think of these as like the NAFTA uh, presidents. Yeah. It wouldn't have happened without um, Carlos and Gonzalez and his control of the yeah. of, of, of the party apparatus. He had a very famous quote though. So he had a, um, a, a an understood but unspoken deal with many of the cartels. He was a Norteño, uh, so up north, but with many of the cartels. And so he would essentially allow traffic to go through the plazas mm -hmm. unmolested. Mm -hmm. um, and he was confronted at one point. He actually went on record with the statement, which is uh, kind of tells you a lot about the state of Mexican civics. And he was confronted by a, um, a reporter. It's kind of a dramatized version of this in Narcos season three. So for those of you who haven't watched <laughs> Narcos Mexico, it's, it's a pretty good show. Um, uh, uh, and uh, and the question put to him essentially was, was how is how is it you have become so wealthy um, uh, when you're, you know, you're supposedly a party boss. And uh, his answer was, and this is the quote, um, a politician who is poor is a poor politician. Uh, and so, and, and so he's, he's proud of this. And this, the, the, this actually gets him cachet within Mexico because uh, this is a man who is supposedly smart enough to enrich himself. Now, now, as Americans, you and I find this ethic to be absolutely abhorrent, right? I mean, it's, it's, it's antithetical to what stewardship and public service should be. But in the Mexican context, uh, it's um, uh, you know it's it's what is done. Not surprising. So to get to what's new now, uh, so 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 you have this the, the, this system that continues on. Uh, what what happens in two thousand is is quite interesting, and you have to credit uh, you know kind of the kind of the, the the leadership of the PRI for allowing this. In uh, you know the the PRI had lost presidential elections before. Mm -hmm. For example, the nineteen eighty eight election. Um, uh, Guatemala Cardenas um, almost certainly won that election, but he was defrauded uh, of it uh, by the PRI apparatus. Um, uh, it's not clear to me whether Zadio was ever legitimately elected, but anyway, he was in power. In 2000, uh, they make the decision essentially to allow the election to be reasonably free, and uh, the PRI candidate loses. So the Revolutionary Party candidate loses basically for the first time mm -hmm. uh, in almost, not, not quite a century, 80 years really is what we're talking about. And uh, and so what and so what happens is uh, Vicente Fox uh, comes into power. He's um, he represents uh, the Pan Party, which is uh, I think broadly a Catholic center right party um, with a lot of Norteño roots. He's succeeded by Felipe Calderon, who we talked about last time. And so you've got twelve years of Pan rule. What this what this ends up doing, uh, and, and and I have to apologize because the analysis here is necessarily brief and therefore um, uh, almost too superficial. But you could spend hours just on this. Oh, yeah. Is 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 the transition away? You saw something similar happen in Russia in the 1990s on a much more dramatic scale. The transition away from the from the edifice of of understood state network and state control, uh, with the reality that the pan did not inherit. All of these relationships and levers of power that the pre had spent the past, you know, near century amassing, um, introduces an element of instability uh, to the system. And so, what you end up getting to by 2006 is the kickoff of the modern drug war. Uh, and this is, this is commonly assumed, you know, Calderon's decision to there's actually a specific decision that he makes to involve the military against the cartels. Uh, and this is what's, what's what's commonly assumed is like the kickoff of what you see now in Mexico, which is the breakdown of the state and the surrender yeah. of sovereignty and so on. So, so, so Calderon comes and goes. Uh, you have this interregnum, uh, 2012 to 2018, which is deeply unpopular. 
Um, uh, it's interesting. He gets elected, and then he he basically leaves office as the most unpopular Mexican president since Santa Ana, which is really saying something because Santa Ana lost half the national territory. <laughs> um, uh, but uh, but you've got you've got Peña Nieto, and he um, to an extent uh, now kind of the genie's out of the bottle, so he can't restore. I think there was a lot of hope, spoken and unspoken in the Mexican civic space that electing a pre-president after 12 years of pan rule mm. would, would, would bring us back to the situation before, not in the terms of, of extirpating crime, but basically in returning Mexico to, um, to what they had before, which is, which is uh, crime occupies a quiet uh, but defined corner of the economy and then the pre sort of controls everything else. Well, th that doesn't happen. Now, now, Peña Nieto and kind of his apparatus is absolutely on the take from it, um, but it doesn't go back to the way it was before. So he leaves office 2018, as we've discussed. AMLO comes into power, who is who you're asking about. Here's AMLO's innovation. Here's the innovation that the Morena coalition. Um, have we talked about the name of Morena, what it, what it signifies? No, I not should, yet. I should, but yeah, you should, you should go yeah, into Yeah, no, 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 we should. So, 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 so Morena is, is, uh, is, is an acronym. It's, uh, it's, it's a Movimiento Regeneración Nacional, right? So it's a national regeneration movement. So, so, so you tell me your native Spanish speaker. What does Morena mean in it's, Spanish? It's very strategic because Morena also makes people feel very included because it's uh, like having a bit of darker skin. It's a bit of darker skin. So like, you have like light skin. Morena is like you're more brown. It's a brunette, right? Absolutely, yeah. yeah, right, exactly. So, 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 you are you are La Morena, yeah, yeah. Um, I'm not, but uh, uh, but but right, you're you're absolutely right. It is the it is the is the condition of the Mexican masses, right? They are right. son son los morenos, mm -hmm. right? And so and so, but there is um, there is a specific individual who is referred to as La Morena. Um, do you know this? No. Okay, I didn't. I didn't know if this carries through in South America. La Morena is the Virgin of Guadalupe, La Virgen de Guadalupe, very, very deeply rooted in Mexican culture and religion. Right. Um, uh, you know, for those of you who, again, who are listening who don't know the thumbnail, and this again could be a whole other podcast. Uh, uh, immediately post conquest, in uh, you know, early to mid 16th century Mexico, um, there was obviously kind of the wreckage of, of, of Aztec civilization. With the Spanish overlaid on top of it, uh, and so there was this uh, this effort by the Spanish to eradicate um, Aztec religion, which uh, had a lot of elements that deserved eradication uh, in full mm -hmm. candor, and to uh, and to um, promulgate Christianity among it. And so and so one of the signal events of this was a uh, a man who was uh, essentially a peasant. Um, so he's remembered now as as Juan Diego, San Juan Diego, Saint yeah. Juan Diego. Um, uh, but he was old enough to have experienced uh, as a young man the Spanish conquest. So, so, so this guy was 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 born Aztec, raised Aztec, um, and came to Christianity relatively late in life. Uh, he encounters the Virgin Mary um, uh, on the hill at Tepeyac. I've been there actually. I've done the uh, just uh, I've done the pilgrimage several times uh, on it. It's quite moving. So if you're in Mexico City, you should, you should do it. Yeah. Um, uh, but uh, but you know uh, what was interesting about it is that he encounters the Virgin Mary in this apparition uh, that unfolds. Um, uh, looking like um, when India, uh, when India, she's 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 Aztec, she's Morena. Mm -hmm. So so all of which to say, like you know, fast forward to today, it's 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 a real innovation for a leftist party in Mexico to call themselves Morena, mm -hmm. uh, because the left in Mexico traditionally in the past century plus has been the anti-clerical uh, element. It's been right. the part that's tried to suppress the church, and it was quite it was a bit of genius 
Yeah. Among 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 Amla's part, I, I and I, re- I remember seeing this unfold. Uh, I forget which year this was. This was either in 2014 or 2013. Um, but 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 a lot of the um, uh, uh, elements of kind of the former like leftist standard bearer party, the the it's the PRD, the Perde, uh, which stands for. Um, uh, I've, I've forgotten the Mexican acronyms. The Partido Revolucionario, something uh, yeah. uh, in there. It's not Derecho because uh, that'd be the wrong party. <laughs> but uh, but uh, they had, you know, the, there's a pilgrimage route that goes to the hill of Tepeyac, which is now caught in the Mexico City conurbation. So it's yeah. you and about five to eight million of your closest friends who are going up there. And it was interesting to me to see uh, to see that the, the, the PRD in particular, Morena didn't exist quite yet, but this is the, the the embryo of it, had actually set up tents along the way. For pilgrims to like get water, to rest, to things like that, which which I took note of at the time because I thought, well, that that's really off brand for them. Actually, that's not uh, this isn't the kind of thing that they would support. But what it was, it was explained to me by more knowledgeable individuals in Mexico. I said, well, the left is. Um, uh, and it turned out AMLO was was one of the masterminds of this. Is leading the way toward an embrace of Mexican traditionalism in some new ways in order to achieve uh, this political power. Re- really fascinating. By the way, also another thing that I saw, um, uh, which kind of gets to the main topic here, in 2019, uh, again, like did the pilgrimage walk. Um, this is in the middle of the day. And uh, and and myself and a friend are, are, are walking along the path, and it's very common. Um, uh, there's just there's nothing like this in the United States, so it's a very like old style something yeah. that you would see 500 years ago in Europe or something like that. Um, but you know, whole villages go, or families go, or there's trade associations that go, and they typically all have like the same uniform on, um, uh, or, or have some kind of marker designating themselves. Like you know, you know we're the we're the people from Jalisco who are, who are processing. Uh, and so we attached ourselves to a group. It was a, it was a group of all men, um, and they were wearing black T-shirts. Uh, and they had a little um, kind of a statuette of the Virgin that they were carrying along with them on the pilgrimage route. And I walked with them for a while, uh, and I, I didn't talk to them. My Spanish is not not good enough. Uh, but uh, but but I started I started looking at them, and and, and these these guys have they've got tattoos and things like that, and, which is again not super unusual. Um, but then I looked at what they were wearing, and they were wearing baseball caps that said, uh, it's, it's a Sur 13 on it. So in English, S-U-R-1-3, Sur 13, basically. Uh, and these men were um, Sureños. Sureño. And the Sureños are a group of criminals and killers who actually originated in California, and these days have extended their operations south, and in many cases function as sicarios for the Sinaloan cartel. I was walking with cartel men in uniform, on the pilgrimage route in the That's middle of That's You never City. told me that. No, well, it, it, crazy it, does, it doesn't organically come up. But 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 what was interesting about it uh, is, I mean, first of all, it was extremely foolish for me to to to, to have been there. Um, but the other part was that was that there was there was Guardia Nacional, uh, and so yeah. these are basically the federal gendarmes, it's successors to you know if you see like you see old westerns and there's federales, mm-hmm. this is them, um, uh, and they've got they've got their U.S. supplied Kevlar's and they've got their their uh, you know their M4s or M16s I forget which what kind of rifle they had uh, with them and they've got their flak jackets on and they're just sitting and they're watching they're watching as as men literally in cartel uniform are processing by uh, that uh, with me and my friend as part of it which is much to our surprise so 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 we we exited we disaffiliated from that group as quickly as we could uh, but the point is that that for the state to be able to or I'm sorry for the cartels to be able to do that openly in the presence of the state. 
speaks to two things. It speaks to the weakness of the state uh, is one thing, yeah. but it also speaks more fundamentally, I think, to the arrangement that the state and the cartels have made with one another, um, that they can coexist in that fashion. That could be the syndicalism that you saw under the, under the PRI. What's different with the Morena is that the Morena has figured out that you can use the cartels as muscle in new ways. Uh, now, the PRI did that before. I mentioned the 1988 election, and there's a lot of evidence that the 1980 election, a lot of the ballot stuffing was done with local cartel help. But um, what we see with Morena is something uh, altogether um, much more much more organized, more sinister. Uh, yeah. There's much more of a synthesis uh, of the two. It's very difficult to pull them apart. Um, uh, and so we, we need to understand that. Uh, I would say that at its worst, Mexico before especially under pre-rule. So let's say we go back to the 1970s and the 1990s or something like that, in which you've got a guy like Gonzalez who is working with cartels, but at the same time controlling the party. I would have described Mexico then as a corrupt state, but it would be a corrupt state uh, that had significant elements within it and saw an interest in cooperating with Texas, with the United States, um, and at bare minimum appearing to do the right thing. And, and, and appearances do matter. I don't, I don't uh, dismiss that. Today, uh, I would say that we are much closer to what I would call an, uh, a full-on narco state, um, uh, which I say with great regret. Uh, and it is indisputable to me that the, the Mexican state interest, again, I'm not talking about all Mexicans, I'm talking about the state itself and the elites who control it, uh, but that the Mexican state interest is no longer in um, either a real or even a plausible, visible um, cooperation with the United States. That doesn't mean that that cooperation doesn't happen. Obviously, they uh, they captured Rafael Quintero, who's uh, like 200 years old now. He's uh, he's one of the guys who uh, murdered um, DEA agent Kiki Camarena back yeah. in the mid 1980s. Yeah. Um, they got him. They got the Ovidio Guzman. I think which we talked about recently. Uh, yeah, 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 like back right in, before Christmas. Back in January, uh, I think it was. Oh, was it in January? Or was it? I December? think it. I think it was right before Christmas. Oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, uh, maybe no, no. I'm sorry. It wasn't January because it was just prior to the Biden visit with the three amigos uh, right. thing. So it was kind of the gift wrap thing. Yeah. So, so they continue to do that, but 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 the object has obviously changed. Um, uh, the, the 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 purpose of Amlo's governance with this alliance is to do the bare minimum necessary to keep the United States and the Americans out of Mexican business, which you know you can you can argue whether or not that's that has rational roots. Um, uh, you know, I, I'd say it does to an extent, but it's being misapplied now at this point. And the United States obviously has its own interest uh, that it has an obligation to advance. Um, and so we just need to understand them uh, in that light. Uh, that you know, we talk about you know, do we have partners in Mexico? Uh, we do, um, but they're not the people in power. Um, uh, they're not the people who are actually running the country now, and that's that's quite a change. It is quite a change, and I would let let me know if you agree. But I do think it is uniquely dangerous that we are just seeing this coexistence mm -hmm. and no shame in it anymore. Yeah. But I would say that two of the things that make this year, 2023, uniquely dangerous in Mexico is we have a super high level of violence. Yeah. And we ha we've we had high levels of violence in Mexico before. You were just talking about Felipe Calderon's administration. There was a very high level of violence, but sure. it looked very different. Yeah. It was like this big war against the drug trafficking organizations. Right. And now we still have a very consistently high level of violence, but but it looks different because you're seeing more collusion with the drug cartels. Right. So maybe you can explain that difference for me. But the second thing that I think makes this uniquely dangerous is the loss of Mexican sovereignty over parts of its own land. Mm -hmm. So can you go into maybe 
like a quick summary of why we might have so much violence in Mexico and two, what led to this loss of sovereignty? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, uh, th these are these are like the giant questions, right? And so anybody who fully answers them will be able to solve it, uh, presumably. So I can give you a partial answer uh, okay. to all this. Look, you, you've got you've got the, the these stratospheric levels of violence in Mexico uh, right. because no one has a monopoly on violence. Period. Full stop. This, uh, you know, in, in the United States and kind of the Anglo-American uh, tradition, uh, we have this idea that, uh, you know, we all have a right, an inherent right to self-defense. Uh, that's why we have a Second Amendment. But at the same time, uh, in, in ordinary time, in peacetime, uh, the monopoly on violence is, is, is properly reposed in the state, yeah. except in self-defense. Like in self-defense, you have a, a right to use it. Um, uh, in, in Mexico, there is no effective monopoly on violence. And it's interesting because Mexico actually has, I think we mentioned this in the last podcast, this extremely restrictive gun control regime yes. uh, that, that, that exists there, which is which is basically a farce because everybody right. knows that there's plenty of people who, who have firearms and who use them for illicit purposes. Um, uh, and so And so we have that. You know, you know, one of the things that we have to look at is we have to look at the way in which um, Mexico is changing under AMLO from a structural standpoint uh, in terms of its governance um, in ways that are exceptionally negative. You know, and, and, and we have to understand AMLO himself is rooted in the 1970s left. That's really his concept. That's why he goes for big industrial projects. That's why he has kind of almost a Soviet um, uh, conception of right. what successful governance looks like. Um, but Mexico, and this is something positive that's actually happened in Mexico, is Mexico has moved in the past generation to genuine political pluralism, uh, which, which you know, as we've discussed, has been a very fraught process, mismanaged at many points. But there are some good things that have happened in Mexico. There's been an independent electoral commission. Um, uh, there's been, you know, kind of fits and starts movements to uh, implementing kind of more checks and balances in Mexican government writ large. And what's interesting is that the is that AMLO's governance has attacked almost all of those. Anything that's uh, an independent force in Mexican governance has uh, almost inevitably come under fire from him, where he's tried to dismantle it. The Electoral Commission uh, being being a prime example. This idea that uh, you know it was something that he couldn't control, uh, and so he has tried to shut it down. I think that's still you know a process that is unfolding as we speak. Uh, another mechanism that AMLO has found that I think is even more portentous than that, more dangerous than that, is he has realized that um, in a very canny way, and by the way, no one can ever accuse him of being unintelligent. He's actually he's actually one of the most uh, you know you know kind of cunning um, yeah, uh, leaders Mexico has had. Uh, but uh, you can get a lot done and circumvent the normal processes if you assign tasks to the military. And so what's happened, you know, and the military was already, particularly the army, particularly Sedena, was uh, deeply complicit in cartel activities to begin with. So what happens when you take that armed force um, uh, that already has a number of sidelines uh, in, um, in organized crime, basically? Uh, and by the way, there's a reason that General Cienfuegos turned out to be El Padrino, right? Because, yeah. because uh, you know, the, the military is, is uniquely positioned to do that. But you take that force that already had a pre-existing disposition toward uh, corruption and illegal activity, and then you massively empower it yeah. with huge, big-dollar civil affairs projects. The new airport in the north of Mexico City that mm -hmm. nobody wants to use. Um, uh, you, know, you know, you talk about mega projects like the Mayan train. Uh, you talk about uh, any number of, of projects. And, and things that have been given to the Mexican army. And uh, you know, go to a certain point and you know, two things happen. One is that, is that this nexus between the army and the cartels uh, is having a bunch of cash dumped into it. 
Um, so the army, you know, the army is not building these projects, these mega projects with with ordinary soldiers. They may be overseeing it, but there's there's workers involved, there's supplies that need to be built. And if we understand the cartels, as we must, uh, not really as drug organizations, but as effectively, you know, I think my term is evil logistics firms. That's really what they are. Um, uh, then, then then all of this is massively enriching. Uh, the cartels. And at the same time, uh, you know, you do get to a point, I don't think we're there yet, but I could look ahead into the next decade and see Mexico getting to that point where it simply makes sense that the military hierarchy will demand to rule the country itself. Something with precedent in Mexico his, Mexican history, uh, it's it's something that, that, that the three, I think, in one of its uh, rare wiser moves in the past century did its best to um, preclude. There was this idea that the army could hive itself off from politics and sort of be like the guardian of the nation. That's falling away too, uh, and so again, like looking at the sweep of uh, not just Mexican but Latin American history, you know what what comes from that. Um, I have talked with at least a couple of people in Mexico City about who the next president's going to be because because AMLO is is going to be termed out. You know, they get one term, so it's in like halfway in July, uh, more than that. So next year, uh, he's there, there's going to be an election in in uh, I believe July 2024. And uh, the question is, is he going to try and use the, the old style dadazo? Is he going to point to somebody? Um, obviously, the mayor of Mexico City, Claudia Scheinbaum, wants to be it. Yeah. Um, I think the money's got to be on her, uh, by the way, because uh, she's actually not. She's, she's uh, pretty well experienced in kind of modernista politics, but, um, but is not experienced in any other way. So, so you know, what, what I've been told, this is third hand don't take it to the bank, is that AMLO regards her as somebody through whom he can govern even when he's out of power. Um, but uh, I have talked with a couple of people and they tend to be individuals from the business community um, mm -hmm. so they, who bring their own perspective, who say that we are gonna be surprised it will be a recently retired general um, who gets the dadazo and comes up. Now, they can never give me a name as to who that would be, so I don't know. If we have a president in Cienfuegos in Mexico, then oh, I'll bet geez. they're off. Uh, <laughs> but I, I don't think that's what'll happen. Um, but, but we have to be alert to that possibility. And if you get there, uh, you know, one of the parallels that I've drawn a lot is um, is that we have to think about Panama in the 1980s, where you did have a general in charge of the country who was also working with the cartels. Um, what does that look like when it happens in Mexico? What do we do uh, when that kind of synthesis is uh, absolutely inescapable and has kind of reached uh, the fullness of its form? We're not going to solve it in the same way that we did Panama, obviously. Um, it's just not on the table. So the question for our policymakers is, um, what do we do when it happens? Um, but in the moment, what do we do to keep it from getting there to the extent that we can actually influence events? Yeah. Well, I want to take advantage of the of the fact that you brought up uh, General Cienfuegos. Mm -hmm. And I want to pick your brain on some of the things like Cienfuegos that have led to this fallout of cooperation between the U.S. and Mexico. Okay. So, you know, like I said, we're seeing like a very high level of violence and we, through that all, are seeing them not cracking down on it, which to me is kind of incomprehensible. Right. But a lot of it is just AMLO being AMLO, like not, not cracking down on these cartels. Uh, sure showing gestures of sympathy to people like El Chapo, his mother, his family, um, and then obviously the Cienfuegos thing, mm -hmm. and then just completely refusing to condemn any cartel activity. So we've seen things like that, which some people might even say is just him being respectful to everyone, to an old lady. Well, that's things, his line. Yeah. That's his line, right? right? That's his line. Yeah. But then we're seeing things that are a little bit more blatant. So, for example, how he has decided to 
I think he dissolved an anti-narcotics unit. And then sure. also he stopped cooperating with the DEA. Yeah. Uh, he's not allowing the DEA to park their plane in Mexico. Everything from that to we've seen that now any Mexican national at any level has to report to the government whenever they have had any sort of cooperation with a foreign law enforcement agency. Right. And so we're seeing changes like that. Uh, can you think of any other ones? And why is this a problem? And what do you think it could lead to? Well, I mean, I think I think you've covered kind of the broad gist of it. That there the is, biggest that, that, Yeah, that there is there is this pullback from cooperation. And and, and to be clear, uh, the the pullback started under under Peña Nieto. So so AMLO is is continuing right. uh, the cessation of cooperation to its logical end. Um, but but I want to I want to put an asterisk on it um, because it's not a wholesale cutoff. I mean, they're not cutting off diplomatic relations. They're still very interested in trade relations, um, and there is security cooperation to the extent that the Mexican side believes it necessary to get the Americans off their back, and that's very very important uh, to understand. They have taken they being the, the Mexican state in general, um, uh, they have taken our measure. Uh, and uh, they, they have done so accurately. Uh, and they know, particularly with the Biden administration now, that if there are, um, if, they, if they make the right gestures and movements on things that the Biden people care about, climate, for example, which is, you know, I think any sane person knows is completely irrelevant to what's happening in Mexico. It's like, you know, if you, if you rank the concerns of ordinary Mexicans, climate is like number 400 uh, on the list. Um, uh, uh, you know, well below security and economy and healthcare and the whole nine yards. Um, uh, that uh, that uh, if they deliver on those things, then we're never going to press them very hard. Uh, and some of this is rooted in kind of uh, an ideological um, uh, inheritance that particularly the American left has. There is a real belief. This is actually not true with everybody. I've talked with former Biden administration personnel. You know, good committed. Party Democrats, you know, individuals who describe themselves as being on the center left, you know, self-described progressives, who actually have very realistic views of Mexico. Um, uh, you know, individuals from whom I've actually learned uh, quite a bit as we talk about what's going on in Mexico. Um, but these are people who tend to have empirical experience uh, and who have seen the system working up front and know that uh, there's something more than the theoretical approach. But those who don't, which unfortunately is the majority. Um, uh, uh, on the on the American center left, tend to adhere to what I will describe as this 1960s 1980s view of the United States vis-a-vis -vis Latin America, which is that we are the villain. We're the ones who caused all of these problems. Mm -hmm. You know, when you when you unpeel far back enough, you can find an American crime underlying everything. I you know I spoke with um, in Mexico City in uh, a couple of years back. I had a meeting with some 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 good folks who were well-meaning or doing good work, but they were they were left-wing Americans. They were uh, you know mostly women from um, California who were down there, and they were they were working. I don't want to uh, anyway. I'll be I'll be a little bit vague, but but they were working to help migrants. And actually, you know, God bless them. Their hearts in the right place yeah. uh, on all this, and so which is why I was talking to them because I wanted to learn, and they gave me a bunch of good info. On uh, particularly the the Mexican uh, INM, so the the National Migration Institute there, um, which was at this point serving as a, a trafficking cartel all of its own. So mm -hmm. so it's so really horrific stuff. But it was interesting to me uh, to speak with them, and then and then their their observations were great, their analysis is great, and then when they got to the policy portion of it, you know, what should we do? Uh, you know, I was interested in their opinions, uh, and and you could almost hear the record needle scratching because there was this immediate like shift of gears and default to well. Well, the roots of this is uh, Reaganite policy in Central America. 
in the 1980s. Uh, it was because you know we funded the Contras, which then led to um, uh, you know a Guatemalan peace process that didn't fulfill itself till 1996. That then led to um, uh, you know capitalist dispossession. I'm not, I'm not exaggerating by much, by the way. So it was a sort of like this this causal chain and this um, this mental reflex to go back and find the U.S. the Estado Unidense villain. At the right. bottom of every every Mexican hill, and, and you know, and, and here's here's the thing, you know, and it's not the it's not that American policy in Latin America or Mexico or Guatemala or wherever is beyond reproach uh, and without critique, uh, because we have done things wrong uh, in the region. It's just it's just reality, you know. You know, we're a nation like any other. The fundamental problem with that kind of analysis, and the fundamental problem with I think what the Biden administration in particular brings to it, is that they do not concede moral agency to Mexicans. They don't. Mexicans are moral agents just as much as we are, uh, uh, you know, and, and, and Mexican, the Mexican state and Mexican people and so on are, you know, children of God just as much as the rest of us and they make choices. Uh, and so, you know, can we in a hypothetical context, you know, look and see where maybe we had a hand in something that happened 60, 70 years ago that might have had a causative chain of events leading to the present day? Maybe we can. It's really a debate for historians. What we have an obligation to do now is to hold people and states accountable for the positive choices that they make now on their own. That's all we can do as a basis for policymaking. And in Mexico, it's overdue. Yeah. And this search for blame that you talk about that we do, we do also see in Mexico, mm -hmm. like people blaming the U.S. Of course. And so I think that this search for blame that you're referring to is part of why Mexican government right now has become so protective of not letting the gringos come in and like not letting Americans really infringe on their sovereignty and carry sure. out really op any operations in Mexico. Right. And so we're seeing that. But what's funny, maybe funny is not the right word, but I guess what's ironic of that is they're so protective over their sovereignty that a lot of people don't realize they've lost so much of their sovereignty, but not to Americans, but to cartels. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. It's like 30 to 40 percent. That was right. That was Ambassador Landau's estimate, 30 to 40 percent of Mexican territory uh, being ceded to the cartels. You're absolutely right. Uh, uh, there, there is a willingness to accept cessation of sovereignty to criminal organizations versus the United States. Uh, and I, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not making an argument that Mexico should accept, you know, cession of its sovereignty, because as you and I discussed in the first podcast. Yeah. Like our our strategic policy goal ought to be full Mexican sovereignty over Mexico. Like we want the Mexican state to be strong, robust, and control 100% of Mexican territory and population. That's that's the ideal outcome from a Texan perspective and from a Mexican perspective. And how uh, sustainable is this approach um, to that that we have the current president AMLO making the hugs not bullets, abrazos no balazos yeah. approach? How sustainable is that? Do you think that it's going to lead to this percentage just widening more? Uh, inevitably, there, there, there's no there's no stopping point, uh, and this is this is sort of where the bargain um, goes wrong. Uh, uh, the, the cartels do not have anything more than a tactical investment in the Mexican state continuing, uh, and what we already saw again, we talked about it in the last podcast, um, uh, is that is that you do see elements of the cartels taking on characteristics of an insurgency yeah. rather than a criminal organization, and so to right. the extent that they become representative of a particular people or a particular region, um, uh, you know, the, the state is not going to get that territory and that population back um, uh, without without a struggle. Uh, of some right. kind. There's no natural limit 
to the ambition of, uh, of an intrastate competitor for sovereignty. There just isn't, and there can't be by its nature. So all the incentives are set up in the wrong direction. Um, at some point, the Mexican state were large is going to figure that out, uh, and you know my, my hope for, for for Mexico and Mexicans, uh, you know who have to live through this, is that they don't figure it out too late. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, th- th- there's one thing I know we're almost out of time, uh, so so I'll just I'll just make this point very briefly. When you look back at uh, again thinking about the Mexican Revolutionary Period, by the way, I mean there's a ton of great books on it, uh, but if if I could recommend that listeners pick up only one, uh, Womack's biography of Emiliano Zapata uh, and his Zapata in the Mexican Revolution, I think it's essential reading. Uh, even if you're not interested in Mexican history, it's just a great study of how states go wrong and how citizen movements mm-hmm. um, go wrong and right. Uh, in Zapata's case, but 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 when you when you look at that period, um, uh, the extent to which Mexican civic life, uh, although obviously you know by its nature taking place all across Mexico, really hinges upon the city of Mexico itself. Really hinges upon Mexico City as as the singular metropolis uh, of the nation. Um, uh, it, it is it is repeated over and over and over again that change doesn't come until Mexico City feels the need. Um, uh, I'm overstating that a little bit, uh, but 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 not by much. Again, in the Mexican Revolution, it wasn't until you know Morelos is not far from Mexico City. Zapata's revolution doesn't make a dent into the attitude of Mexican governance until it hits Mexico City, until it affects things in Mexico City. And unfortunately, I think that we have uh, a similar phenomenon underway now. That when it gets to Polanco and Condesa and El Centro, right. then we might see a desire to change. It'll be felt. And with the little time that we have left, I want to ask you one more thing. And it relates to democracy and how we've seen that change with the current administration. Mm -hmm. Um, We have seen with AMLO in the past couple of years, we've seen him go from a little bit bending the democratic norms to now like straight up breaking them. And not just in small ways like you know, attacking people who critique him and journalists who critique him and being so willing to attack too, like a lot of the non-governmental organizations that are trying to lead investigations into corruption or like human rights, things like that. But um, we're seeing kind of this radical shift and a lot of the checks and balances are starting to dissolve, which I think is very scary. That's how it started in Bolivia too. And so I'm just curious to see what you think about this democratic shift in Mexico and whether you think it is our responsibility as the U.S. to get involved? Should we do something? Should we just look the other way? What do you think is a decent approach to that? Yeah, uh, well, uh, there's at least three or four questions in there. I'll try to be I'll try to be reasonably brief. Uh, You know, know, we talked earlier in this in this episode about the tendency of of Mexican politics and Latin American politics to center upon a man. Uh, And and that's happening in Mexico right now. And so so AMLO believes uh, and I don't think he's totally wrong about this, but AMLO believes that an attack upon his policy is an attack upon him. And so he is the bearer of the nation. He is the bearer of the movement and the nation and the party. Uh, and therefore, um, to to go after as he does at his at his mañaneras, you know, which is his daily press conferences, which last hours. So you can watch, long. You can watch them on YouTube, actually. Yeah. They're very interesting, though. I've watched um, a few. Yeah, yeah, same here. Very, very interesting. Um, uh, and uh, you know, and he he uh, he governs through these. Um, but when he when he attacks his enemies in them, he he I think genuinely believes, and I think a lot of those who admire him uh, believe that he's attacking the enemies of the nation, the and and the vision of the nation that he exists to produce. You know, Amlo Amlo uh, is is rooted in one thing that I think is is incontestably true, 
um, which is that you know when you think about when you think about the right and kind of the conservative movement in the United States, and you think about this Anglo-American tradition of conservatism, right? You know, I would argue you're thinking about something that's reasonably virtuous and frequently speaks for the people. Uh, the context, you probably know this better than I do, it's very different in Latin America. When you're talking about conservatism and the right in Latin America, you are often, not always, but often talking about a, a tendency and a niche from a historic perspective that has really been the elites versus the people in general. Yeah. And AMLO just speaks directly to that historical experience uh, and leverage it. And it's credible because of what that past has looked like. Um, and so, you know, he's able to to activate um, uh, kind of the instinct of left populism right. uh, to that end. Now, uh, you know, I think I think your closing question, should the United States get involved uh, in that? Uh, uh, no. And I'll repeat something that that uh, I believe I said in the first podcast. It's not our business to fix Mexico. It's our business to understand it. Uh, you know, we ultimately as Americans, we have to have the humility and not succumb to the hubris that we can show Mexico how to do Mexico in a better way. That is something that only Mexicans can lead on. We can do two things. We can be an example, which we are. Um, and and there, are, there are many, many stories of Mexicans coming, returning from the United States uh, and bringing an American, almost as Anglo-American conception of rights to places like Michoacan. You see this especially in issues of self-defense. It's actually, there's some very inspiring stories along those lines. Um, and we can also structure incentives to where if the Mexican state wants to have relations with the US, this is what we haven't done well, then there are conditions that must be met. Number one remains security. Well, I think that's the perfect place to end it. So thank you, Josh. Thank you, Melissa. Appreciate thank it. Thank you for being here for your very unique perspective. And thank you to everyone for listening. This is Hard Country, episode two, and we'll see you next time. Mm-hmm.